Good morning. That's, that's good. That's a little more robust. That sounds, that's more in line with, uh, with the number we have here this morning. We're glad that all of you who have come to join us this morning in this house, we're glad for you. And we're grateful for all of you who have joined us from your house this morning. We're thankful for all of you who have joined us this, this, on this day that hopefully is going to turn out a little bit better than it started, right? Hopefully the rain is going to move out and we're going to have a little sunshine by the afternoon. But uh, the Lord knows exactly what we need, even on days like today. And so we're grateful for Him and we're grateful for this place and we're grateful for you. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me once again to the book of Habakkuk and to chapter 2. And we're going to continue our study through this little book in this series that I have entitled Confidence in Confusing Times. And I hope just that title in, of it, in and of itself is an encouragement to you. When you stand on the firm promises of God and you trust in Him, you truly can have confidence in the middle of what is confusing times, even in the times in which we live today. This morning, we come to what is sometimes referred to as a watershed passage. In other words, it, it, the message that's conveyed to us in the text that we're going to study today really divides all of humanity into one of two groups. Now, we know that we can be divided in a lot of different ways. In, in humanity, we're always divided. We can be divided based upon gender, male or female. We can be divided based upon our ethnicity. We can be divided based upon the language that we speak. We can be divided on where we came from as far as our country. All kinds of ways that we can be divided and, and categorized, countless ways in which we can be separated. But in the end, as we will see this morning, God makes clear to Habakkuk and from our text today that there is only one distinction and there is only one line that will ultimately matter for all eternity. The most important question that you and I must face is what side of that line we are on because it will divide us into the one of the two groups in which God has declared. We find that watershed line really clearly stated for us in verse 4 of our text. I'm going to go ahead and read it for you now. Verse 4 says this, the Lord is replying to Habakkuk, and he says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now the simple yet infinitely important line that will ultimately determine the eternal destiny of every man, woman, boy, and girl is found in this verse, and it forces each of us to answer this question. Am I among the proud unbelievers whose hearts are not upright, or have I been declared righteous because of my humble faith in God's only provision for eternal life, His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus. Now let me just say at the outset that there is no more important question that you will ever have to ask yourself than that. Am I among those who believe in Jesus Christ or do I remain pridefully in my unbelief? 
Now, in order for us to, to gain a full understanding and appreciation of this text, we got to remember that chapter 2, verse 4 comes in the context of an ongoing conversation that's being held between Habakkuk the prophet and God. The, the, the conversation began with chapter 1 with Habakkuk going to God and, and asking, how long will God just sort of not pay attention to what's going on in the nation of Judah, his own nation, with all the lawlessness and all the injustice that was going on there? And he wants to know why this is going, why this continues to occur. God answered by revealing that he had a plan to raise up a wicked and aggressive nation named the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And he says they would be the ones who would go in and would punish the Jews. Then chapter one then concluded with Habakkuk being concerned about that. How could God do that? How could God allow a nation as wicked and as unrighteous as the Chaldeans to be raised up to go in and punish the Jews who, though they were bad, weren't as bad as the Chaldeans were? And so chapter 1 ended with, with that question on Habakkuk's lips. And chapter 2 began with Habakkuk declaring that he would wait upon God to answer and that he would watch to see what the Lord would say to him. And so it is that the Lord's reply to Habakkuk's second set of questions is what we are going to undertake to study today. And we're going to do that beginning in verse 2 of chapter 2 of the book of Habakkuk. So read with me because we'll begin reading there and read down through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Habakkuk says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home, because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, how long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you and will you become their booty? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house. That he may set his nest on high. That he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house. Cutting off many peoples and sin against your own soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall. And the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to the bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look upon his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. 
The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake. To silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this day that you've given to us and for this time that we have to study your word. Now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand that which you have authored and that, that which will we attempt to try to understand today. Help us to be able to see it clearly and then give us the faith that we need to apply it accurately. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I, as I made clear even last week, but also today, I believe that verse 4 is the key, is the key verse really to the book of Habakkuk. At its heart is really the key that unlocks the message of this book, but I believe that at its heart is the key that locks the message of all of Scripture and in fact introduces us to the gospel. And unsurprisingly, a message that is that important, really we would expect there to be a sign on it that says, handle with care. Handle such a message like this, as important as it is, handle this message with care. Well, really, that's exactly what we find in verse 2. When God begins to tell Habakkuk what he's going to say to him and how he wants him to handle it, he says to him in verse 2, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Now today, as we work our way through this text, I've just given you some hooks that we're going to hang our thoughts on as we walk through the text today. And the first hook that I want you to see, the first point on your outline this morning is this. I want us to recognize the clarity of the message. The clarity of the message. The Lord told Habakkuk to write down what he would tell him so that it could be clearly and plainly communicated and therefore clearly and plainly understood. Now, there's some debate among scholars as to exactly how to interpret what the Lord says here. Was he telling Habakkuk to write these things down and this vision down in such large letters on these clay tablets so that it could be stood up so that someone who was running past it could look at it and see what it said and understood it while he was running past it? Sort of like a billboard on the side of the road for us today. Or what was, was God actually saying, write this down so that there could be messengers who would run throughout the nation of Israel, out the nation of Judah, and be able to proclaim this vision to all the little hamlets and all the little villages. Is that, is that more? I tend to go with the second explanation, that, that what he wrote down was to be taken throughout the nation of Judah and proclaimed. But either way, notice this. What, what God tells Habakkuk is handle this message with care. Make it clear. Make it plain. I do not want it to be misunderstood. I want its communication to go out clearly to those that you will take it to. You know, I read this illustration about two road workers who held up a sign that read, turn around before it's too late. 
But to their shock and to their horror, the cars just kept speeding past them and past their sign. And finally, one road worker looked at the other and says, do you think that we should be a little clearer and change the sign to read bridge out ahead? Listen, that's exactly what I think the Lord meant regarding the clarity of this message. God did not want Habakkuk or anyone else to be confused by what he said, nor did he want anyone to fail to recognize the supreme importance of what he said. That's the first hook. It's the clarity of the message. The second hook, the second point on your outline this morning is this. It's the certainty of the message. The certainty of the message. The vision the Lord provided Habakkuk was to be written plainly and clearly because it was certain to come to pass. I've mentioned this to you before a few times but during the study, but verse 3 makes the point again that from our earthly perspective, it often seems as though God's never really not doing anything. He's just, he's just kind of out there. We've been praying to Him. We've been asking for an answer to our prayer request. We've been praying for a solid two weeks about this thing. You know, and we just really think, God, you need to come through now. And, and, and it just feels to us sometimes like God's just sort of not listening, that He's idle, that He's just not paying attention. But I want you to know God is not inactive, and He's not idle, and He's not indifferent. From what we read in chapter 1, though, that was Habakkuk's beef with God. He had wanted to know why, why God was taking so long to do the things that he had asked him to do. But the Lord tells Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 3, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. You know, what that means is that there is an absolute certainty to, to the fulfillment of what the Lord communicates in this passage. The Lord says that the vision that he's going to give to Habakkuk is absolutely trustworthy. There's no deception in it. There's no falsehood in it. So consequently, there should be no doubt and no uncertainty, even if the Lord should delay in how he answers what Habakkuk's question would be even though he might take his time. You know, in his commentary on this verse, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says that while the, the phrase, though it tarry, it will not tarry, though that may seem like it's self-contradictory, Spurgeon says it's not. You see, it often seems to us that God tarries. It often seems to us that God just takes his time. But God knows, Spurgeon says, that the fulfillment of His will will not be a moment beyond the appointed time. Brothers and sisters, you and I can be assured that what God says will happen, will happen. You can be assured of that. So we have the clarity of the message, we have the certainty of the message, and then we move to the third point there. The third hook on your outline is this, it's the content of the message. Let me read verse 4 again. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's all kinds of ways that you and I can be separated into various groups. But, but we realize that God only divides us into one of two groups. He divides us into the just, those who are upright, and the unjust, those who are not upright. 
He divides us into the righteous, those, those who are right with God and those who are unrighteous, those who are not right with God. There are the believers. There are those who trust in God and there are the unbelievers, those who do not place their trust in God. And then we can also see from this verse, there are the proud. There are those whose minds are focused on themselves. And then there are the humble, those whose minds and whose hearts are focused on God. In fact, I want you to notice with me that based upon this verse, we recognize that the major hindrance to being just and to being upright believers is the issue of pride. If we take it a step further, based upon the full revelation of Scripture, we will understand that, that there are only two possible responses to God. Only two. Humble acceptance of Him by faith and proud rejection of Him through unbelief. Those are the only two responses. Humble acceptance of Him by faith or proud rejection of Him through unbelief. I believe it's important for us to understand that prideful unbelief doesn't necessarily mean that you don't believe in any God at all. It really just means that you don't believe in the one true God and in His Son whom He has sent. In fact, based upon what we read here, the opposite of humble belief in God is pride-filled confidence in oneself. That accurately describes the attitude of the Chaldeans. You remember, that's the context. God is answering Habakkuk with regard to the, the context of how long are these Chaldeans going to be able to continue to run roughshod over us and the rest of the world? And God has already described the hearts of the Chaldeans back in chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, look, they, they believe they have the ability to call the shots and they can just do whatever they want to do based upon what they think is best for them. In fact, the reason they show no mercy to any other country is because they don't believe that there's ever going to be a day of reckoning for them. Consequently, they just do whatever they want. Down in verse 11 of chapter 1, God declares of them that they are guilty men whose own might and power was their God. What we need to realize is that what was said of the Babylonians is also true of everyone who doesn't believe and who does not submit to the Word of God. When the Lord says to behold the proud, literally He is saying, look at those who are puffed up, look at those who are swollen with their own confidence in themselves, because listen, they can never be upright. Someone who is constantly focused on themselves and whose confidence is in themselves can never be righteous because pride never acknowledges need. And listen, those who do not believe that they need the gracious gift of God will never receive it. One of the verses that my dad quoted so often to my brother and I growing up was Proverbs 16, verse 18. He quoted it in the old King James. He'd go, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. And I knew he was talking to my brother. <laughs> I told him so. Listen, that is precisely what Habakkuk, God is telling Habakkuk here in chapter 2, verse 4. He's telling him that the pride of the ungodly will ultimately lead to their ultimate destruction. While faith, faith of the godly will lead them to eternal life. That brings us to the second part of verse 4 and the part of the verse with which we are most likely most familiar. 
The second part of verse 4, we've probably heard many, many times. The just shall live by his faith. And the reason that that is so familiar to us is because it's quoted so many times in the New Testament. In fact, the Apostle Paul quotes it twice. The first time he quotes it is in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We read this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then Paul says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, The just shall live by faith. Paul just takes this verse from Habakkuk and puts it at the very beginning of this treatise of what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ there in Romans. He, he uses it as a means of establishing everything else he's going to say in the book of Romans. In the book of Galatians, he uses this same verse again there to describe what it means to come to God by faith and not based upon our works. He says in Galatians 3 verse 11 that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. Why? For the just shall live by faith. So Paul takes this verse and it, it really finds its center at the heart of his theology and what he writes about in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews also takes this verse in Habakkuk 2 verse 4 and uses it as a means of talking just how integral and how absolutely important faith is. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 38, the writer says there, Now the just shall live by faith, but anyone, draw if they draw back or if they shrink back from it, he says, my, my soul has no pleasure in him. Just a few verses later in chapter 11, verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Do you sense the, how absolutely important faith is? It is absolutely essential for God in order to declare us righteous. We must have faith. But I want us to dig a little deeper and understand what does the just shall faith, live by faith actually mean? Well, we have to determine what it does not mean. When, when, when God says you have to have faith, when, when he says without faith it is impossible to please God, he's not just saying faith in general, faith in faith, faith for the sake of having faith. Sometimes you'll hear people say, man, you just got to believe. It's, it's always in sporting events. You just got to believe. You just got to have faith. And I want to scream, faith in what? What are you believing in? You see, faith is only as important as its object. Faith is only as good as in what you place your faith in. Just about a year ago, a little over a year ago right now, I was able to take a trip to the Holy Land. Many of you knew I was able to go there. And I found myself on the top of Mount Carmel where Elijah had the battle with all of the prophets of Baal. And it was on top of that mountain that, that all of those prophets began to cry out to Baal. And they lacerated themselves and they, they screamed and they cried and they called out to their God. And you know what happened? Crickets. That's right. Nothing. Nothing. And at the end of the day, they all lost their lives. Why? Because they had placed, they had faith. They generated a lot of faith, but it was in a false God. What we have to realize is that faith in and of itself, apart from the proper object, has no ability to justify anyone. The only faith that pleases God is a humble trust in Him and in the promises that He has made. It is the kind of faith that rests everything on the bare promise of God. That's really 
That's really what we see. A lot of draw a parallel between Habakkuk 2 verse 4 and Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, we find the story of Abraham. And Abraham is there and God tells him, look, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply your seed until it is more than the stars in the sky. Now, remember, Abraham at that time was, was an old man and he was married to an old woman who had never been able to bear children. And he's going, how in the world is this going to be? How can you say that? But then the Bible says in Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed in the Lord and the Lord credited it for him as righteousness. Listen, Abraham believed the bare word of God and trusted that God would do exactly what he said he would do. Based upon his faith, God judiciously declared Abraham to be righteous, apart from his works and apart from anything that he ever did. That is what it means when we understand this statement. The just shall live by his faith. Later in the 16th century, it was this one statement that stopped Martin Luther in his tracks, set his soul free, and started the whole Protestant Reformation. Luther wrote this. He says, night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the righteous shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, he says, I felt myself to be reborn as to have gone through the open doors into paradise. So this is the dividing line. This is the watershed that God himself draws. He says it is not simply believing in something. It is believing and trusting in the right and proper object. Now, when we look at this passage through the lens of the New Testament, we come to understand that faith in God that justifies us and that is counted for us as righteousness is a faith in God that is placed only and clearly in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. I want you to consider the most popular verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that what? Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It is faith in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son. Just a few verses later, down in John 3, verse 36, it reads this way, He who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What all that tells us, is that prideful unbelief that leads people to ultimately place their confidence in themselves or in false gods or in other things other than, other than Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, that they will stand under the wrath of the condemnation of their own sin forever. On the other hand, those who will humbly place their trust in Jesus Christ, God will declare them righteous. He will grant them eternal life not because of anything that they have done to earn it, but purely based upon faith in Christ. Putting it in very simple terms, it means this. What you do with Jesus determines your eternal destiny. Will you humbly place your faith in Him? Or will you defiantly and pridefully refuse His offer of grace and suffer the wrath of God upon your sin? 
It is a simple question, but I want you to know it is a severe question. It is a severe question because the stakes could not be any higher. So we've seen the clarity of the, the, the message, the certainty of the message, the content of the message. And then the last and the fourth hook on your outline this morning is this. It's the confirmation of the message. Confirmation of the message. Beginning in verse 5 and then working our way through the end of the chapter, God really goes down and answers the question about the Chaldeans. The first thing he does is look, he says, look, the Chaldeans are like a drunk man. They're like a drunk man who can't get enough to drink. And so he leaves his house and he goes to bar after bar after bar after bar and he drinks and he drinks and he drinks and he can never get enough. That's what the Chaldeans are like. He said, I'll tell you how else the Chaldeans are like. They're like death itself. They're like a grave. They're like hell that cannot be satisfied. They just want more and more dead bodies to come in upon them. That's how the Chaldeans and the Babylonians are. That's why they continue to go and ravage other nations. That's why they can never be satisfied with what they have. That is the way of the proud, unbelieving, Chaldeans. That's how God describes them in verse 5. And it's why he says they gather to, he gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Now that was certainly true of the Babylonians. But I think we need to recognize that it's the same way with prideful unbelief. That's how it affects all human beings. No matter what they attain in life, prideful human beings are never satisfied with what they have. I always want more. That's what Solomon tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes. The person without God is always searching. He's always hungering, but he's never satisfied and he's never filled. So clearly the Lord is drawing a parallel between the proud person whose soul is not upright in him. That's verse four. And then the wicked Chaldean and Babylonians whom he has raised up to be his instrument of punishment for the Jews because of their disobedience. And Habakkuk had asked how long this wicked nation would be allowed to run roughshod over them and all these other nations of the earth. And in the verses that come to follow, we come to understand that God had a plan. He had a plan that, that he was not only going to deal with the Jews of Judah, but he had a plan that was going to deal with the, with the Babylonians. And though it may appear to tarry, it will not tarry at all. As he declared, those whose pride is in themselves, they will suffer God's wrath with those whose faith is in him and will receive eternal life. That message is confirmed by what we read from verse 6 through 20. These verses actually comprise a complete section in and unto themselves. And they are referred to as what is, what is a, a, a song of taunt. Now we know what a taunt song is. I mean, it, it starts when... Kids are on the playground as little bitty young toddlers, and they na-na-na-na-boo-boo. -boo. That's kind of how it starts, right? But then as we get a little older, we think, well, that's just cheap. We, we, we get more intense on our taunts, right? And you go to any football game or a basketball game, and you start hearing the taunts as they go back and forth from one side to the other. And they, and they sing these songs back and forth. And some of y'all know some of those songs, and you probably need to repent of some of the stuff you've been singing at some of these football games, because I've heard them too. But that's what it is. It's the songs of taunt. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament because it says there very clearly that, that they will take up a proverb against him and they will a taunting riddle against him. In other words, beginning in verse 6 all the way down through verse 20, there's this singing, taunting, but it's a taunt of the Babylonians, 
of the Chaldeans. And interestingly enough, it's being sung by all of those people that the Babylonian Chaldeans have run roughshod over. So, so really, the Jews of Judah will take up this song and sing it. And, and the other nations that have been defeated by the, the Chaldeans will take this song up and sing it. And embedded in these song of taunts are five woes that are going to be passed upon them. Five woes, five things that says, look, this is a bad thing that's about to happen to you. I'm not going to read all this back to you. I want you to, I struggled with it enough when I read through it the first time. You need to struggle with it and read through it yourself. But I want you to know know that you might just put a highlight past where the the woes are contained. The first woe comes in verse 6. And in verse 6, if I could just summarize that woe to you, basically it says, those who plunder will themselves be plundered. You come in, the Babylonians had come in and, and stolen and taken all of and amassed all of this stuff from these other nations. And, and basically what the taunt is, is that that same thing's going to happen back to you. Everything that you have gotten is going to be taken from you. That's the first woe. The second woe occurs in verse 9. And basically, if I could summarize it, I'd summarize it this way. Those who exploit others will themselves be exploited. The Babylonians were known to go in and just tax the nations that they came in and, and, and inhabited and, and they would put these just unjust taxes on them. And then when, when those nations couldn't pay the taxes, guess what they did? They took all the goods and all the, all the gold that they had and they took it back to, to Babylon and they would build their great city based upon that. And they believed that they had built a city that was impenetrable. But it was not, as the book of Daniel tells us. We realize that there was no escape for the ones who lived their lives for their own possessions. That's the second woe. The third woe occurs in verse 12. And we can summarize it this way. Those who shed blood will have their own blood shed. The Babylonians, they built their city and they, they built this just huge wall around it. And they did it with the inexhaustible supply of slaves that constructed these massive fortifications. And when those slaves became too weak and too exhausted to work, then they were just summarily killed and replaced by more. However, as history tells us, one night, 538 B.C., the city of Babylon was invaded by the Persian army and Cyrus the Great. And over the next two centuries, the city of Babylon declined significantly to the point, in fact, that in the 19th century, it was said that there was no certainty to the actual site of that once great city. Those who shed blood will have their own blood shed. The fourth woe comes in verse 15, which can be summarized this way. Those who disgrace and demean others will themselves be disgraced and demeaned. The the Babylonians were just wicked people. For their own enjoyment, they would use wine to cause those that they had conquered to become drunk so that their inhibitions and their modesty would be completely eroded. And they would have those things there and they would do those kind of things just for their own pleasure and their own entertainment. And God declares that his judgment will be poured out upon them and that their nakedness and their shame will be exposed for all to see. That's the fourth woe. And then the fifth woe occurs in verse 19. And it's kind of tied back to the whole idea of, 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 of having uh, prideful unbelief or belief, faith in, in something that's false. 
Notice that, that I would summarize it this way. Those who create and cry out to idols will be met with silence. That's really what you read there. It was, it was unimaginable that people who had life in them, they, they breathed the breath of life, would then go cut down a tree or take a stone and that they would form it into some sort of an idol and overlay it with gold and then bow themselves down to that inanimate, lifeless object and say, it's going to speak and it's going to give me information. And the taunt is simply, you might as well be dead yourself if that's the way that you're going to approach things. Now, as I mentioned, these taunts, they're directed against the Chaldeans. They're directed against the Babylonians whose prideful unbelief would ultimately be judged by God. And in that, I would probably say that we could have added a fifth point to your outline. I didn't do it, but I could have. We find that for the Jews who would be defeated and who would be pillaged by these Chaldeans, well, there would be a comfort in that message. There would be a little bit of comfort in knowing that the Babylonians would not rule over them forever and that they would not terrorize them forever. But here's something that you and I dare not miss. What God declares will happen to the Chaldeans will happen to all who, who fail to place their faith and their trust in God. In fact, we can say that with these five woes and these taunts, we come upon a universal principle of unbelief that, that those who engage in that willful, prideful unbelief will be punished certainly, and they will be punished dreadfully. And I want you to know that is confirmed for us in what we read in the book of Revelation. John the Revelator writes this in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Can you imagine how terrifying that day will be? Can you hear? The screams from those whose name was not written in the book of life. Can you hear the weeping and the gnashing of teeth? A death sentence being passed upon every man, woman, boy, and girl who failed to place their faith in the one prescribed means, the Lord Jesus Christ. The doom and the grief as they suffer an eternity in hell. I want you to know the words of our text here in Habakkuk chapter 2 ring out on that day. Woe to him. Woe to her. The message that God gave to Habakkuk is confirmed by what he tells the prophet will occur to the Chaldeans. It's going to occur with all who fail to place their faith in Christ. But I want you to see it's confirmed in one other way. And it sneaks in there a little bit just in the middle of the third woe. Right in the middle of the chapter, you'd blow past it before you knew it if you weren't careful. It's verse 14. 
Verse 14 tells us this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One writer put it this way, that is like, that is like an orchid blooming in the middle of a sewage plant. That's like a diamond laid in the middle of a muddy road. Those are words that are filled with hope, brothers and sisters. Those are words that, that should give us tremendous confidence. They are words that tell us that God's glory cannot and will not be frustrated. His will will come to pass. And those words echo the promise that God made to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. From his seed would come the Messiah. The blessing would find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ who has come to lift the curse of sin and free us from the penalty of death. Jesus has done that by dying for us, bearing our shame, bearing our burden, and suffering in our place. And that is the message of the gospel. The good news is that there's hope. The good news is that, that, that what we've just read in Revelation and what we've just read in Habakkuk 2 does not have to be your destiny. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, death and destruction and recompense does not have to be where you face your eternity because Christ has died in your place and He is raised to new life so that you too might have life everlasting. And what I want you to know is every time that gospel message is proclaimed, I want you to know Christ's glory fills the earth. Every time a man, woman, boy, or girl turns loose of whatever it else it is that they have been trusting in and they place their confidence completely and clearly in Jesus Christ, His glory fills the earth. And that glory will continue to fill the earth more and more and more as the gospel is preached to every nation, tribe, and tongue until one day, until one day, as the prophet Isaiah has written in Isaiah 40, verses 4 and 5, every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Brothers and sisters, the vision that the Lord gave to Habakkuk concerning the woes that would fall upon the Chaldeans, they confirmed the message that he had delivered in verse 4. A message that is certain, a message that must be clearly proclaimed. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. My sermon in a sentence is this. The message that prideful unbelief leads to death while faith in Christ leads to life must be clearly proclaimed because it is certain to come to pass and will be confirmed by God's judgment upon those whose confidence is in themselves rather than in Jesus Christ, whose glory will ultimately fill the earth. I want you to know this morning I have preached this message as clearly as I know how, with as much certainty and confidence that it will come to pass. The question is simply this for you. So what will you do with it? Will you continue to live in prideful unbelief and ultimately suffer the condemnation of God? Or will you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son who died in your place and rose again on the third day? Will you receive the life that is offered to you through faith in Christ? Or will you pridefully remain under the condemnation that you have rightfully come to deserve because of your sin.
Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. And all of God's people said, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you that we know that there is a Savior who has come to this earth to die on a cross for our sins and in our place so that we might be forgiven and that we might have eternal life. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. Father, the the scriptures are so clear. My prayer is that there's one under the sound of my voice today, whether they're in this room or worshiping with us online or whether they come across this sermon at some later date, when they hear this message, that their heart would be softened to the work of the Holy Spirit to bring them to a place where they will no longer trust in themselves, trust in false gods that cannot save that they would completely and totally place their faith in you and what you have done for them. This is my prayer. I pray also for those of us that that is our testimony. Because, Lord, we do face confusing times and difficult times. And it does seem at times as if the world is going to win out and all the things that we have committed ourselves to are going to lose. You promise us that one day, Every valley is going to be raised and every mountain is going to be brought low and every crooked road is going to be straightened. You will make all things right in your time. And though it may seem to tarry, we have complete confidence in you to know that it will not tarry. It will come. Our faith and our confidence remain solidly placed in you. Comfort us. Encourage us motivate us to continue to go and to share the gospel message so that the glory of Christ may fill the earth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.